Our Father, we do thank you uh, for this Genesis story and for the way that it helps us understand who we are and who you are and how our world works and why it is the way it is today. Father, please help us this morning as we look at this passage to see how sin affects our relationship to you, to others and to all creation, but how your grace persists. And we pray that you'll do this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've probably worked out by now that Genesis is an origin story. In fact, that's what Genesis means. It means origin or beginnings. Uh, And origin stories help us to understand why things are the way that they are. Uh, so if you're uh, a bit of a fan of kind of the, the comic book universes, either, you know, DC, Marvel or whatever, uh, you would know that the origin story of Batman helps us to understand why he is a vigilante crime fighter and also why he's so inner tortured and, and so dark and so, so broody, right? That's because his parents were killed by some criminals and with the wealth he has, you know, he decides to use that to, to fight crime. Or perhaps if you're familiar with other kind of stories, maybe indigenous Aboriginal origin stories like uh, like this one, When the Snake Bites the Sun, uh, a story like this uh, will help you to understand why we have night and day and why at sunset you can have those brilliant fluorescent colours of pink and yellow and orange and red. That's what this story helps to explain. Uh, And Genesis has so far helped us to understand our origin. You know, that God is the origin of all life. Creating everything from nothing by his word explains why we as creatures can't actually generate life ourselves. We can't make life where there isn't. And it's also why we value life so highly. Uh, And that creation is made with an order to it explains to us why science works and how we can discern and discover the rhythms and cycles of creaturely life. And that human beings are made in the image of God explains why all human beings have equal worth and dignity regardless of their age or capacity or their usefulness or their gender. It explains why meaningful work and interpersonal relationships are such a big feature of our human desires. It explains all these good things, but maybe even as you've been going through the first two chapters, you've also had this niggling thought, just kind of tugging at the back of your mind. As you try to rationalise these stories with your own experience of life. Because if God is the origin of all life, well then why is there death? And if creation is ordered, then why is there earthquakes and why is there inequality, sorry, and why is there chaos in our world? And if all human beings are made in the image of God, well then why is there inequality and divorce and violence and exploitation and loneliness? Now why is work often gruelling and futile rather than meaningful and rich? Why do I have to keep pulling weeds out of my garden or cutting my toenails, right? The question is, why is the world the way it is? And we saw last week that all sin is foundationally a problem of the heart. 
Right? Sin is first and foremost a relational term that describes our distrust of God's goodness and his abundant provision. A sinful heart disregards the abundance of plenty to see only what we don't have. It reinterprets generosity as malevolence and stinginess. It calls good what is evil and evil what is good. A sinful heart turns in on itself. It neglects the giver of life and also the lives of others as well. And so if Genesis 3, 1 to 6 gives us a pattern of how all sin operates, then Genesis 3, 7 to 24 shows us the far-reaching effects of sin in our relationship to God, to each other, and also to the natural world. It shows how sin disorders the world that we live in. You know, in an ordered world, God is the Lord, creator of all, and people are his royal representatives in ruling over the creatures and the natural world. But in a disordered world, well, we see a creature, a serpent, a snake, usurps the position of human beings who in turn usurp the Lord, God, who is Lord over all. Can you see how everything goes backwards in Genesis chapter 3? And so sin affects our relationship to God, to creation and to others. And so at our first point, the effects of sin, we're going to look at those three things. First, our relationship to God. So verses 7 to 13. Here is the first effect of sin. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. After eating the deadly fruit, Adam and Eve realise their nakedness. Their eyes are open to see their own vulnerability. They feel exposed. Now, if we were to do a little experiment... And we're just to start getting undressed right now so that we all stood naked here in this room. Those feelings, as you imagine that, that's how they felt, right? You feel vulnerable. You feel exposed. You feel as though there is nothing to hide. But I would want to hide, to be honest. I'd be glad there'd be a pulpit here. (laughs) That's how they felt in that moment. The way that we feel now when we are naked in public. I don't know if anyone's been there. Uh, Before this, there was no fear of being exploited or made fun of or having any inadequacy. They'd never had any reason to fear each other or to fear the Lord God. But now, verse 8, when God comes walking through the garden in the cool of the day, which is a picture of open and intimate fellowship that they have enjoyed with the Lord God since the beginning, well, what do they do? Right? They hide themselves. Why? Well, because they're naked. Uh, They've always been naked, but now they are ashamed of their nakedness. 
and they no longer desire to be in God's presence. So not only do humans feel afraid of the Lord, but when the terrible deed is confessed, the man and the woman both try to throw the blame back onto God himself. I think Genesis was absolutely written by a parent at this point. I feel like I've had this conversation with my kids many times. What does the man say when God questions him? Verse 12, the woman, remember the one you made, the one that you put here, the one with me, right, back at you, she gave me the food and I ate. Uh, And then when he questions the woman, verse 13, she says, the serpent, by implication, go back to verse 1 of chapter 3, you know, the one that the Lord God had made, the one who was more crafty than all the wild animals, that one, remember the one you made? He the one, he's the one who deceived me. And I ate. So whose fault is this whole debacle? Well, it's not mine. It's you, Lord. And maybe this line of argument is already something that resonates with you. You know, it's not your fault that you distrust the Lord, right? It's his fault. You know, why doesn't he make himself clearer if he really is the Lord God? Why did he create a world with so many problems and so many barriers to my belief? My sin is not my fault. He should provide better services, more resources in my temptation. And the question is, well, I mean, I wonder if this is the way that you rationalise your own sin. This is how you justify it to yourself. It's never your fault. In fact, it just can't be helped. It's the desire, it's the person, it's the thing that God put here that made you do it. This is the hard question that helps us to contemplate the state of our relationship with the Lord. And so, is he the one you blame? Or do you recognise your own culpability for sin? This is the first effect of sin. It creates a chasm between us and God. It creates a relational chasm of suspicion and disbelief. Uh, The second effect on our relationship to creation is in verses 14 to 15 and 17 to 18. Verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Uh, In verse 17, To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Can you see how now in the story there is a tension between people and the natural world? Snakes will continue to be a cause of harm and the ground will no longer cooperate with our plans and designs. Work, as we experience, it is now toilsome and difficult. You know, as I read this, especially as someone who lives in a a country famous for their venomous snakes, I don't think this curse kind of evokes the same sense of fear in me as it might have done in other times or perhaps in other places. I think snakes, 
Yeah, we've got a lot of deadly ones, but I don't worry about snakes. I'm not even sure I know anyone who's been bitten by a snake. Anybody? I don't know anyone who's been killed by a snake. I don't live my life in fear of snakes. However, if you live in an agricultural society, this curse explains a lot about your experience. Right? Snakes are to be deeply feared because they're everywhere. Right? Because you work out in the field where snakes are slithering their way through the, through the wheat or the corn. Um, even today, I looked this up on the World uh, Health Organization stats. Every year, 5.4 million people get bitten by snakes. Every year. Um, out of those 5.4 million, 81,000 to 138,000 people are killed every year. Right? Mostly in agricultural societies like Africa and uh, in Asia. Um, three times as many as that number, so the 81,000 to 138,000, three times as many of that suffer permanent disabilities from those snake bites. Right? A lot of people in the world live in fear of snakes and have this very real enmity between them and this creature. Who knows when it will just slither out and strike one of their children dead or even themselves out in the fields. In an agricultural society back then and still today, snakes are an ever-present source of danger, death and fear. In this story, the conflictual relationship between people and snakes becomes representative of the new strained dynamic between people and all creatures. Animals will be wild and unruly. Oxen will gore their herders, dogs will maul their owners, elephants will trample their keepers, manta rays will pierce their marine observers, and humans will cage and domesticate animals. Uh, We will bait and cage them, we will exploit and mistreat them, we will seek to harness them and also protect ourselves from them. Some uh, creatures on this planet will be made extinct. Other creatures, perhaps like the cane toad, will overrun and overpopulate areas in plague proportions, causing ecological havoc, both in spite of human intentions and, ironically, because of human intentions in the first place. You see, all creation is now subject to frustration because of sin. The very soil itself will produce both wheat and weeds together and we will drench it with herbicides and insecticides and fungicides to make it yield what we want and desire. There is now a tussle between humans and creation but eventually the ground will swallow us up. Verse 19, for dust you are and to dust you will return. And I wonder if you feel the tension in our world. I didn't think I would choke up there. I think I just felt it. I think I just felt that tension. Whether you feel the desire to master your environment, to domesticate your pets or exterminate your pests, whether you feel frustration in creation, yearning to be free from mining and chopping and harvesting, but still also needing to be sculpted and mastered and brought under control. 
You see, this is the hard question that helps us contemplate the state of our relationship with creatures and the natural world. And so how do you relate to your environment? What is your relationship with the natural world? You see, this is the second effect of sin. It creates a frustration between us and creation, a relational tension of both fear and of domination. That's the second. Here's the third effect of sin, which affects our relationship to each other in verses 16 and 20. Verse 16. To the woman, God said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. You see, right here in the centre of God's judgment on sin is the impact that sin has on interpersonal relationships, especially within families, as even we just heard with the storm-tossed family quotes. Right, That the pain of childbearing is intensified, And there is now an unbalanced power dynamic present between men and women. Uh, The woman will desire her husband. Uh, And this is not a romantic desire, but a desire to master. This is the same word and almost the same sentence as chapter 4 and verse 7, if you flick over the page, where sin desires to master Cain, but he must master it. The woman desires her husband, but the husband will rule. Now, this is a far cry from the beautiful song. In chapter 2, The harmony and self-giving reciprocal joy of man-woman relationships now gives way to rivalry, to conflict, to betrayal as each one tries to dominate the other. And I do think it's interesting that it's only after the fall It's only after this sin that in verse 20, the man names his wife. I think actually it would have been better, it makes more sense if he named his wife Eve back at the end of chapter 2 after this glorious song, but he names his wife Eve here. It's just been Adam, which means man, and Adama, which means woman. It's just been man and woman. But where else have we seen man name other things? When chapter 2, verses 19 to 20, God parades all the animals before him, his creatures, and because Adam is made in his image, he he lets him name his animals, in a sense to, to own them, to rule over them. And whatever he called that animal, that was its name. And here, in chapter 3, verse 20, maybe here is the first instance of the man demonstrating this new, unbalanced power dynamic in his relationship to the woman. 
And he calls her, he names her Eve because she'll be the mother of all the living, which in itself does express a hope in God's promise that life will keep going on. But it's interesting, isn't it? And I don't think this is the way things were created to be. Uh, This is not an endorsement of unbalanced power dynamics in marriages or between men and women generally. This is a sign of God's judgment against sin. And so wherever you see that kind of skewed and distorted abuse of power, we are reminded that 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 this is not the way things are meant to be. The effect of sin drives a wedge between men and women that isn't good All right. It should joyfully be described as bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh rather than that resentful cliche, can't live with them, can't live without them. And I wonder if you view male-female relationships in this same way. You know, in every struggle for domination of the other, do you see the effect of sin? And how do you respond when you see it? Do you respond with complacency? It's just the way things are. Right? Men are bigger and stronger, women are vulnerable, just suck it up. Or worse, do you respond with more oppression and domination? You see, this is the hard question that helps us to contemplate the state of our relationships with each other. And so how do you relate to the opposite sex. This is the third effect of sin. It twists and it skews our relationships to one another. And sin always affects our relationships to God and to each other and to creation, no matter how insignificant we think our sins might be. And so I want you to kind of do a thought experiment. Let's think about a sin that's not perhaps... Uh, articulated here in this passage, something that we might all be guilty of, something like covetousness, for example, to to envy what someone else has, or or perhaps uh, coveting another person's body by viewing pornography or lustfulness, or perhaps coveting the material possessions of your neighbour, or perhaps even another person's life experiences or their results or their gifts or their resources... How do we see this same pattern of sin spread out across those three dimensions of God, each other and creation in the sin of covetousness? This sin, covetousness, affects our relationship to God because, well, it's a form of idolatry. It worships created things rather than the creator. It distrusts his goodness and turns the plenty he has given us into a fear of scarcity. I I see what I have, but I want that over there. Now, this sin affects our relationship to creation because it exploits to satisfy our consumption. And what we covet is only valued for what it can do for me. And this sin, of course, affects our relationship to others because it objectifies others. Coveting dehumanises And it commodifies others. It makes us grumble about what they have. It leads to jealousy, malice, envy. It leads to competition. 
Can you see how in that one example of a sin, how it affects all those spheres of creation, of our relationships to each other and to the Lord? And I think this would be a worthwhile exercise to practice as you notice and confess and repent of your sin. Ask yourself, what has this done to affect my relationship to the Lord, to others and to the created natural world? Now, it may be an exercise that doesn't make you feel very good about yourself. And it will definitely increase your awareness for the magnitude and consequences of your sin. But this is why it's also very important that we see God's grace in mitigating the effects of sin here in Genesis chapter 3. So here is uh, the second point or the third point on your outline, the grace of God. Now, we see examples of God's grace all the way throughout this whole Genesis episode, Uh, not least because God allows human life to continue and work to be done and food to be produced, but also in the last section, right? In, In verse 27, the Lord clothes Adam and Eve with even better clothes, right? With something more durable than fig leaves. And of course, fig leaves might work for a day, but what happens to leaves after about a day? They start to go brown, they crinkle and fall, but not very good clothes. I notice no one's wearing fig leaves here today. The Lord God clothes them with something more durable, with, with skins of leather. He, he provides this for them to cover up their nakedness and their shame, to give them a sense of protection in their vulnerability. The Lord does this for them. And then verses 22 to 24, the Lord also demonstrates his grace by not allowing sinful people to live forever. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever thought that that would be an act of God's grace, but I think human immortality and wickedness, both enduring, would be an absolute and unmitigated disaster. Right? Sometimes we think we picture heaven as being a place that will be inclusive of everyone, you know, the righteous and the wicked. Everyone gets to heaven, except for maybe Hitler and his dog. But of course, if that's what heaven was, if it just looked like the world today, it would be an even more hellish picture of our world. Because people would live forever in that kind of heaven, but still rebelling, still biting and devouring each other. And that's not any kind of paradise vision for a good life. And in fact, we'll come to see in the great flood story in chapter 6, the consequence of human wickedness as it spreads, as it seeks to dominate the other and seeks to endure even beyond the restrictions that the Lord has given it. We also notice that back in verse 15... There's an example of God's grace as it describes the reality between human beings and particularly snakes. There is this future promise that a human, a child of Eve, as C.S. Lewis would call it in the Narnia Chronicles, uh, will one day defeat the ancient serpent, that is, the devil. And in all this, we definitely see how sin affects our relationship to God, each other, and to all creation, but we also see how God's grace persists and endures despite our sin. Grace that persists even after people have set themselves against him as his rivals, as his enemies even. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we are still sinners, he is gracious. And this is a fundamental dynamic of how we relate to God in a world which is marred by sin. He comes to us in our weakness. 
He comes to us in our need for forgiveness. He makes the way to us because we try to hide ourselves from him. And here is where we need to remember that this foundational story here in Genesis chapter 3 is not our only story. This Genesis 3 story explains much about our present experiences of the world, you know, why the world is the way it is, It explains the problem of childbearing for women, tensions between men and women, why we don't live forever, why we wear clothes, the tension between people and the natural world, our propensity to blame others and not take responsibility for our actions. It explains why work is hard and why we don't see God face to face anymore. But we also have another story. We have the good news story of the Lord Jesus who has dealt with our sin decisively, who has made peace between us and God through his body on the the cross by his blood, who has made a new humanity reconciled to each other and to our Heavenly Father, who has made us a new creation with a certain hope for a future world liberated from its bondage to decay, who has given us his Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until everything is fully redeemed. The gospel story of Jesus is the good news story that decisively deals with our sin and shapes who we are. It gives us a new relationship with God, a new relationship with each other, a new family and a new relationship with creation by his grace. Because sin affects our relationship to God, others and creation But God's grace persists and endures. And God's forgiveness of sin is given to us by grace in Christ Jesus. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So two hard questions to finish. Do you know the magnitude and the consequences of your sin? And secondly, do you also know the even greater magnitude and consequences of God's grace to you in Christ Jesus? Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that this story helps us explain, uh, helps explain our experiences of the world today. It helps us understand the brokenness and frustration of this world. But Father, we thank you that even in this story we get to see snippets of your grace. And Father, we thank you for that bigger story of the Lord Jesus and how you demonstrated your grace and love to us in him, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that we might call you Father and be in a reconciled relationship to you and each other and even to the created world. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to know that hope and life in Jesus, even in the midst of our sin. And we pray this in his name. Amen.